1, right in the beginning of your Bible, and we're going to be looking at a couple of passages in Genesis this morning, Genesis 1 and Genesis 3. It's also printed in your bulletin. We're beginning a new sermon series this morning entitled Christ the King, uh, Needed, Promised, Sent, and Returning. And that's what we're going to look at over the next four times that we meet together. This morning we're thinking about Christ, our needed King. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Well, actually beginning in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now down to verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food, and every beast of the earth, and every bird of the heavens, and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And then over to Genesis chapter 3, we'll look at the first seven verses. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. We hear it every week, but it's still true. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Lord God, we ask that you would add your blessing to the reading and preaching of your word. You know the, the joys and the struggles that we each carry this morning, and we pray that you would use your word and use the gospel of Jesus Christ to strengthen, to encourage, to convict, to transform us. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. A few months, a few weeks ago, about a month ago, um, my family and I did an escape room. Have you guys ever heard of an escape room? Uh, You ever done one of these things? Basically, you pay money for people to lock you in a room and... uh, or multiple rooms, and then you have about an hour to escape. And so our, our room was themed uh, a murder mystery 
at the Starlight Motel. You'll be happy to know that we escaped. We made it out alive just in the nick of time. It's actually a whole lot of fun. And uh, from the very beginning, at each stage in the escape room, we were trying to figure out what we needed to do to get out. What do we need to do to find the key to this door so we can open it? What do we need to do to find the combination to this suitcase so we can figure out what's inside? We were constantly trying to figure out what do we need to do to get out of this room. As I said uh, earlier, the theme of our sermon series this morning is simple, Christ the King. It's a familiar concept. It's a phrase that we've heard and seen time and time again. But the kingship of Christ is actually something that is highlighted and it reminds us of what Christmas is all about. That the king of the universe entered into time and space to rescue and redeem us from our sins, redeem rebellious people just like us. And this morning we're going to explore this part of the story. We're going to explore the the reality that we need a king. And the, the stakes and the implications of our need for a king are way more than our needs in an escape room. We need a king and it is a life and death reality. And I'm not talking about politics. I'm not saying that we should move toward a monarchy and and, uh, get rid of our constitutional republic. I'm talking about the fact that we need a spiritual king. We need a cosmic king. And whether we realize it or recognize it or not, we have that king and his name is Jesus. And we're going to talk about our need for a king this morning by looking at the fourfold story, the four-part story of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, future glory. Those are our our benchmarks. Those are our uh, anchors in God's story that help us understand God and ourselves, help us understand the past, the present, and the future. And as you know, God's story centers around Jesus. It centers around Jesus Christ, the King, needed, promised, sent, and coming back again. So let's look together at the passage. The first thing we want to see together is that we need a King because we were created. And you may think to yourself, I thought this was an Advent sermon series. Why are we in Genesis chapter 1? Well, we need a King because... We were created. And as we think about that, we begin with this reality. God was not created. You ever thought about how profound and glorious the first verse of the Bible truly is? In the beginning, God. There is no defense. There's no uh, apology. There's no argument for the existence of God in the beginning of the Bible J. Gresham Machen, a longtime professor at Westminster Seminary, said it like this, Christianity begins with a triumphant indicative. God is eternal and infinite and unchangeable. He's the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He goes back before the beginning and he goes on before the end. God was not made, but we were made. It's one of the reasons we need 
a king. We are created beings. We're not here by accident. We are not the result of the evolutionary process. All people know, believers and unbelievers, deep down that there is a God and that he made us. We see it from the Bible, from the book of Ecclesiastes. It says that God has set eternity in our hearts. You remember these words from Romans chapter 1. For what can be known about God is plain to them, people, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. We are created beings. And though the word king is not used in Genesis chapter 1, God's sovereign power that he's the creator and sustainer of the universe, highlights the reality that he is king and that he made us and we need him. Not only has he made us, he made us in his image. This is another deeply profound and glorious part of Christianity, of creation. Not only have we been made, but we've been made in the image of God. If you were to look at photos of my wife, Sarah Parks, And our daughter, Meg, when they were four years old, they are indistinguishable. My daughter is the spitting image of her mother. And in some way that uh, illustrates the fact that Adam and Eve were made in God's image. They were made with his stamp, his imprimatur on them in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness And and part of that image was lost in the fall, but still each person who has ever lived has innate dignity, worth, and value because he or she is made in the image of God. And it's one of the reasons we celebrate and stand for the dignity of human life from the cradle to the grave. We're made in the image of God. We reflect the dignity of God and power and glory of the king of the universe. And not only that, we are made in God's image with a purpose. We are made to reflect God's glory and majesty and creativity, and we were given by God, it says in Genesis 1, dominion over creation. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. And those principles of dominion are still active in our world. God created work. God created rest, God created marriage and family, and we're made to express and extend the rule and reign of God in this world. And when we use our bodies and our minds and our lives and our creativity for God's glory, we are taking plays from God's playbook for us. We were made with a purpose. We are made with a purpose, and how do we know how to live? How do we know what to do, what's good and what's right? How do we know what we need? We need a king. And he tells us. Remember, Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day in the garden. They lived in this this loving relationship with him. But even before the fall, even before sin and death entered the world, they needed him as a king. So that's how we begin. We need God as a king because he is God. He made us in his image. We reflect his dignity and we're made with a purpose. Brothers and sisters, let that shape the way you see yourself. 
and the way you see others, made in the image of God for a reason, for a purpose. Let it motivate you to submit yourself to the kingship of Christ. We also need a king because we're fallen. We all know about the fall, and no, I'm not talking about that time of the year when the leaves fall off the trees. I'm talking about what we see in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3 gives us a pathology, it gives us an autopsy of sin and temptation and deception, and it still has implications in our lives to this day. It is an attack by Satan, the father of lies, on the kingship of God. And how does Satan do that? What does it look like? Well, he does two things. He questions God's authority and he questions God's goodness. Look at me in Genesis 3, 1. Hath God said, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And so Satan begins to undermine the authority and the goodness and the trustworthiness of God. And Eve's answer is partially correct. Verse 2, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. This is the part that she adds, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Maybe she thought adding that would protect her and Adam. But one of the realities we know from God's word is that adding to his word is as dangerous as taking away from it. And Satan goes on, verse 4, surely you won't die. It's another attack against the trustworthiness of God. And then verse 5, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So to summarize, what is Satan saying? Are you sure you can trust God? Is he really good? It seems to me like God is holding back from you what would make your life better. Surely you won't die. I mean, isn't that a little harsh? What kind of God are you serving anyway? And we see, we know how the rest of the story goes. Adam and Eve fell hook, line, and sinker. Their eyes were opened. They hid from God because of their guilt and their shame. Even though he was their king, they rebelled against him. They fell. Does that story sound familiar? It's not something that's ancient. It's something that's present in our lives, too. We have rebelled. We continue to rebel against God, our king. How? One way is we question God's authority. One of the biggest ways that we can question God's authority is by questioning his word. One theologian said it like this. What happens... If you eliminate anything from the Bible that offends your sensibility and crosses your will. If you pick and choose what you want to believe in the Bible and reject the rest, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you? You won't. You'll have a God, essentially, of your own making. We don't do this outwardly very much. We rarely say, I don't believe God's word on this. But practically actually in our hearts, in the sins that we give safe harbor in our life, in the idols that we indulge, we question God's authority. We question God's word. 
Are there areas in your life this morning where you need to repent and return to the authority of God and his word? Brothers and sisters, we need a king because we're fallen. We also question God's goodness. Not only question his authority, we question God's goodness despite a steady, overwhelming, consistent, timeless mountain of evidence which declares God is good, we struggle to believe it. We struggle and we wonder if God is really in control. Does he see me? Does he care about me? Why would you let this happen in my life, God, if you're good? And to be clear, we have all suffered extremely difficult things in our lives. Pain, loss, betrayal, abuse, abandonment, just to name a few. And maybe, maybe now in your life you are going through the ringer in your life. Those are terribly hard things. And I won't pretend, pretend to know exactly why we go through the hard things in our life. But, but when I go through difficult things and when I help others in the church go through difficult things, here's something that I do. I say, what do we know? What do we know? For we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What do we know? We know that God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Therefore, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? What do we know? That our present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. What do we know? We know that the king of the universe left the glories of heaven to become a man and to take on flesh, born of a woman, born under the law, born in a manger to a teenage girl, to execute the greatest rescue mission that the world has ever known. We need a king because we question God's authority and goodness. We need a king because we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We need to remember the words of John the Baptist, when he pointed at Jesus and said, Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Oh no, I think I've started into the third point of my sermon. Not sorry. Because the fall and our sin and our guilt is the backdrop, the context in which the love and redemption and glory of Jesus Christ shines. You ever been to the jewelry store? He said, I'd like to take a look at that piece. What do they do? They, they unlock the case and they bring it out and they put it on their hand. They show it to you in their hand? Not usually. They put it on the glass case? No. They put it on a black felt velvet thing because they want that tennis bracelet to pop they want it to shine and we have fallen and we are sinners and it makes the love and mercy and grace of God shine like the sun Jesus is a light of life he's a light of men his light shines for you and for me.
couple questions. Have you seen and admitted to God that you're a sinner? Not just, yeah, I've messed up. You know, everybody makes mistakes. Every now and then. Have you said to God, like the prodigal son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against earth, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Or have you said with David, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Acknowledging and admitting our need is a huge piece in us embracing Christ, our King, our glorious Redeemer. Have you trusted in him? And are you trusting in him? Are you committed to a life of growing faith and repentance in Jesus Christ? Are you allowing the light of God's word and the the fellowship and accountability of sisters and brothers in Christ to continue to convict and shape and encourage you in repentance and transformation in your life? We are called to put sin to death and to live for righteousness. We can do that because Christ is our King who is also our Redeemer, and that takes us to the third point of our sermon. We need a king who can redeem us. And as we see the implications of guilt and shame and sin unfold in Genesis chapter 3, there are some glimmers of hope. And there are two concepts, two words that I want us to think about. Crushed and covered. Genesis 3.15 says this, God is cursing the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her, your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head or crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is what theologians call the proto-evangelion. We get a glimpse, a first look at the gospel and good news of Jesus Christ. This promise is that someone from Adam and Eve's lineage will come and destroy the serpent and crush his head. And he will defeat the evil one, the the usurper and and redeem God's people. And there will be a cost. The serpent will strike his heel. And we see this promise unfold throughout the Bible. We see it take shape in the rest of God's story. We'll see it in a few weeks when we look at the Exodus from Exodus chapter 14. We'll see it in living color. And we see it ultimately in the incarnation of Jesus Christ at his birth. God became one of us in order to lay down his life for us, to crush the serpent's head, to accomplish redemption, to gain the victory. And it's one of the reasons why Jesus cried out, it is finished on the cross. And the veil of the temple was torn into mission accomplished. That's part of our need for a king who redeems us, who crushes his enemies, who crushes death. We're also covered. I have a friend, um, and when we used to go out to lunch a lot, um, let's just call him Jacob. Uh, and uh, we get to lunch, and he'd be like, oh, man, I forgot my wallet. I forgot my wallet. I got you covered, man. I got you covered. Some of us have uh, 
we, we, I think if you drive a car, it's a law, you know, car insurance and homeowner's insurance. Some people have an umbrella policy to cover anything else that might come up. We get the idea of being covered, right? Adam and Eve tried to cover their shame and their guilt with fig leaves. Didn't work out so well, did it? But God, by his grace and as a sign of, of what their sins deserve, killed animals and made coverings of animal skins. He clothed them. And brothers and sisters, our sin deserves death. We can't cover up our shame and our guilt. Though so many times we've tried, we've tried to quiet the shame and guilt by sinning more. We've tried to cover up the sin and guilt in our lives by Trying to be good and keeping the rules, neither works. We need a king. We need a redeemer who can cover us, who can cover our guilt and shame and sin, who can cover our souls. Good news. His name is Jesus. Genesis, I mean, Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose sin, whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Believers are hidden with Christ and God. Our union with Christ means that we are covered by his life, death, and resurrection. This is what Christmas and the cross are all about. We have fellowship. We follow. We worship. We bow down to a servant king, a savior king, a redeemer king, who literally has skin in the game for us and our salvation. We need a king who can redeem us. His name is Jesus. It's exactly what God has done. And Kurt made this application last Sunday. We never, we can never get over this gospel. We can never get over Jesus, our redeemer. One theologian said it like this, the gospel is the ABCs of Christianity, but it's also the A to Z of Christianity. So this Christmas and the excitement and hustle and bustle of family and programs and parties, remember Christ is our Redeemer King. His grace, his gospel is the greatest gift that we've ever received. Cherish it, enjoy it, return to it. Focus on it. He made us. We've we've fallen. He's graciously redeemed us. But wait, there's more. We need a king who's coming back. The story of Christ, our king, is still unfolding. And some of you might think, how? What happened with Jesus happened 2,000 years ago. He rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven. Isn't the story over? No. Not at all. We live between the already and the not yet. The already of Jesus' incarnation, his birth, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his glorious resurrection and ascension into heaven. Between that and his return to establish the new heavens and the the new earth where he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no more pain or sickness or sadness or death. We live in between the already and the not yet. In fact, Jesus simply didn't ascend into heaven. He's not just waiting around for the final chapter to unfold. He is ruling and reigning now. He's actively in charge. 
In fact, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And that's not, he's not seated in a lazy boy. He's not kicking back. When a king is seated, it means he's enthroned. Jesus is in control. Jesus is ruling and reigning in this world. And he's coming back. What does that mean for us? It means that we get ready. We've already been loved and accepted by our Redeemer King. We've been set free from the bondage of sin and death. And now what do we do? We love God. We love Him. Why? Because He first loved us. This is the greatest commandment in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what did Jesus say in John 15? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. We love him, live for him. Since he's coming back, or we will all go to meet him soon in a very little while if we pass away from this world, we should take John's words to heart. Remember 1 John 3? Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We should live holy and righteous lives in response to God's indescribable gift for us. How and where in your life do you need to grow in holiness? How else should we respond? Love God and love others. How do we do that? We love other people through service. Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he washed his disciples' feet, he said this is an example for you. Brothers and sisters, we have this great opportunity to love and serve one another There are so many needs, so many wounds, so much hurt, even in our body. We can love and serve each other. And we can love and serve our neighbors and our community. We can love and serve people who have been forgotten and written off. We can surprise people with the kindness and love and mercy that flows from hearts that are transformed. And remind them that they're made in the image of God and God has sent a Redeemer. We need to tell others about him. We have the words of eternal life. We have the good news of Jesus Christ. He is the king. He's the king that this lost and dying world so desperately needs. There's a way out. There's a solution to the guilt and shame and confusion and emptiness Christmas is a wonderful reminder that we need a king and that we have a king who made us and redeems us even though we're fallen, who's coming again. Brothers and sisters, go tell it on the mountains. Shout it on the rooftops that Jesus Christ is born. Let's pray. God, we need you. We know it and feel it every single day. And we thank you that you have met our need through the cross, through the empty tomb, and through the manger. And you continue to provide for us and hold us up. Lord, help us to live for you by faith. 
to glorify you in all that we do, to love you and to love others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.